0: Just before I read uh, from page 7, it's Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 32. It's worthwhile hearing Luke's introduction to this story he's telling about Jesus. He was a profound thinker and a physician. He's got a very tidy mind, and you'll probably pick that up in his style. But in writing an introduction, he said, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So starting from verse 1. and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who were lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. And when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thank you, to God.
1: Thanks, Phil, and please do keep that passage open. I'm going to be referring to it uh, quite regularly throughout uh, what follows. Today, according to the Anglican liturgical calendar, uh, is the second Sunday in Advent. Or as Justin is wont to say, um, the board never lies. and You can see it up there. And this morning I preached at the 8.30 service, a traditional uh, prayer book service. Uh, and there was a, a collect this morning that really touched my heart. And so I thought I'd pray that uh, in anticipation of opening up God's word uh, with you this evening. Uh, the collect was for the second Sunday in Advent. And the language is a little bit arcane, Uh, But the sentiments are timeless. Uh, So please pray with me as we prepare for opening up God's word together. Blessed Lord, who hast cast all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of each everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. As we've just established, uh, the season of advent is upon us. And traditionally, this is a time of expectant waiting and preparation for the celebration of the birth of Jesus at Christmas, and also the return of Jesus at his second coming. And now, if you're not up with ancient terminology, well, Advent in Latin means coming, and the Latin word adventus, uh, in turn, is the translation of the Greek word parousia, uh, which is commonly used to refer to the second coming of Jesus. And so we have Advent, the first and second comings of Jesus. And in order to prepare our hearts and minds to celebrate the first coming of Jesus at Christmas time and to raise our vision to his second coming, uh, this Advent, as Justin's established at Churchill, we're turning to the memorable line from Isaac Watts' famous Christmas carol, Joy to the World. Uh, that line, let every heart prepare him room. That's a beautiful line. Let every heart prepare him room. Uh, now, it's not scripture. But every word in that line is drenched in Scripture, as we hope to show you over the course of this series. Let every heart prepare him room. Six words and six messages for Advent. Uh, Last week, uh, Justin spoke on the word let, and this week I'm going to speak on the word every. Uh, This week, an emphasis on every in the phrase, let every heart prepare him room. good news of Jesus Christ is for everyone. The first Christmas impacts everyone. And the Gospel of Luke, what we've just read, is it pains to show us this right from the start. And so in this time of expectant waiting and preparation for Christmas, we're going to have a look at the Christmas story this evening from Luke 2, with a special focus on the diversity of the people involved. Because... The good news of Jesus Christ is for everyone. Let every heart prepare him room. And you'll notice uh, at the passage uh, right there in front of you, first verse, uh, we begin with Caesar Augustus. And so that's where we'll begin too. I'll, I'll read it. Luke begins, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And so here we have the story of the birth of Jesus, beginning with one of the most important emperors, in the history of the Roman Empire. Uh, Perhaps, as some scholars suggest, the most powerful human being before the day Jesus was born, uh, given the size and unparalleled power of the Roman Empire. And so here's a little bit about the man. Uh, Caesar Augustus was a born fighter uh, who sort of clawed his way to power by defeating Antony and Cleopatra. And then through his sort of considerable genius and force of personality, He gave the Roman Empire a solidness that would endure for centuries. He began all sorts of building programs, and he set up this massive system of centralised government, uh, which regulated commerce and trade. He proceeded to strengthen uh, the military, and for his entire reign, Rome was at peace. Uh, With his leadership was born that famous period known as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, where dissidents were made such an example of by the Roman military that an uneasy peace prevailed right throughout the empire for fear of brutal reprisal, uh, crosses lining the highways and the like. And in addition to all of this, Augustus did much to advance the culture of the Roman Empire. Towards the end of his life, he said, I found Rome bricks and I made it marble, distinguishing himself as the greatest statesman of his time. Such, uh, in fact, was his success and power uh, that Augustus's reign is remembered as the period in which religious worship of the Roman emperor took hold as Dominus Edus, uh, Lord and God. And yet, in today's passage, we see the most powerful emperor in ancient Rome acting out the decree of God. You see, long before Caesar's decree that Joseph and Mary travelled to Bethlehem, God had issued a decree through the prophet Micah. I'll read it, Micah 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely For then, his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. That's Micah 2. And so, God uses perhaps the most powerful human being ever to walk the earth before Jesus to orchestrate the birth of one far more powerful than he. Let every heart prepare him room. God uses Israel's oppressor the most powerful man on earth, to unwittingly orchestrate the birth of the Messiah, God's anointed king, whose kingdom, unlike Augustus's or, in fact, any other earthly kingdom, will never end. The young couple, however, uh, that Luke introduces to us next couldn't be more different to Caesar. Their names are Joseph and Mary, a village carpenter, and a pregnant teenager from Nazareth, a tiny town in the middle of nowhere. Uh, They've travelled over 100 kilometres, most likely on foot, to Joseph's ancestral home to register for Caesar Augustus's poll tax, a tax deeply resented by the populace and seen as a badge of slavery. And It's been an arduous and difficult, a really hard journey. Imagine walking, or perhaps riding a donkey, uh, for more than 100 kilometres when you're pregnant and near full term this isn't even to speak of the raised eyebrows and the closed doors that would have greeted an unmarried and pregnant couple travelling together in the culture of the day. And all of this so that you can pay taxes to Caesar Augustus, who's recently taken on the blasphemous title, an abomination to Jewish people, Dominus Deus, Lord and God. Let's pick up the story of this young peasant couple uh, from verse 5 in the passage in front of us. Uh, Joseph went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Uh, While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Uh, She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And with these very brief words, Luke announces the most significant birth in the history of humanity. And as Justin mentioned last week, right away our minds run to children's stories of Mary and Joseph's late night arrival in Bethlehem, a bustling inn packed to the rafters, a heartless or or perhaps kindly innkeeper who consigns a woman in the late stages of pregnancy to the stables to give birth. But you know, as romantic as these stories are, it's in fact very unlikely that the birth of Jesus came about this way. In fact, if we look closely there at our text, uh, verse 6, we see that while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, meaning that Mary and Joseph were likely in Bethlehem for some time before Jesus was born. And when you think about it, it's sort of rather unlikely that they would have left that 100-kilometre-plus journey uh, to the last minute and risk giving birth along the way. And then there in verse uh, 7, the NIV, correctly I think, uh, translates the Greek as, uh, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, Uh, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And you'll note there that unlike the King James Version, uh, which was the source of many of our traditions when it comes to the birth of Jesus, uh, the NIV, again correctly I think, says there was no guest room available for them. And not, there was no room at the inn, which comes from the King James Version. In fact, later on in Luke's Gospel, the Greek word for inn is used. But here the word's different, referring instead to the guest room of a house. You know, Luke's description fits the archaeological record. Uh, The footprint of a typical first-century Palestinian dwelling was was this big, long rectangle, uh, divided by two walls into three spaces. Uh, There was a large central room uh, with a stable for animals on one end, and then a guest room on the other. And all three rooms would normally have separate entrances, Uh, and the the guest room uh, was separated from the central room by a big, tall, solid wall, Uh, and then the stable separated by a half-wall, allowing the family to feed the animals without going outdoors. And by the way, scholars have also pointed out that, given what we know of first-century Mediterranean hospitality, uh, on arriving in Bethlehem, Joseph could have simply announced, I am Joseph, son of Heli, son of Matat, son of Levi, and most homes in that town would have been opened to him. Mary and Joseph weren't turned away from an inn, and forced to make do in a stable. Uh, Far more likely, they were taken in by distant relatives who lived in a modest first-century dwelling that was overcrowded due to the census. Now, other guests uh, took precedence over Mary and Joseph, who then either slept with the family in the central room or in the adjacent uh, stables, uh, the animals most likely having been moved to a pen outdoors. But the point remains, the God of the universe steps down to become one of us and is born in a stable. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords rests his head, not in a palace like Caesar Augustus, but in the feeding trough of an animal. The hands that flung stars into space can barely grip their mother's finger. The eyes that witnessed the birth of the cosmos blink newly against the light. The word of God become flesh is unable to speak a word. The one who moments before sat at the right hand of God in heaven is plunged into a huddle of animals, his head resting where cattle have fed. And the world is changed forever. Fully human, God comes down. He is one of us. He comes to the least of us so he can relate to the most of us in order to die for us as the servant of all. Let every heart prepare him room. From the most powerful man in ancient times uh, to a humble couple from a deadbeat town. And next, in a passage, it's angels and shepherds. And singing which, by the way, is a feature of the beginning of Luke's gospel. In chapter 1, Mary and then Zechariah sing. And soon in our passage, Simeon will sing. And right now, in the text we're about to look at, a whole company of angels is about to burst into songs of praise to God in the night sky over a little town called Bethlehem. Luke introduces the birth of Jesus and the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament in him with songs of loudest praise sung by common people and angels to common people they sing about one born poor a commoner like the rest of us through whom billions would one day become rich let every heart in Luke 2 angels sing to shepherds of all people but why not In Luke's gospel so far, we've seen God at work almost exclusively in the lives of ordinary people. An elderly couple in Luke 1, a a teenage girl, a a carpenter from the wrong side of the tracks, and now low-paid workers from the rough end of town working a night shift. Think perhaps council workers with tattoos and muscles and cigarettes building a road under lights, doing good, honest work in the middle of the night while their loved ones sleep at home. Or perhaps two miles outside of Bethlehem, um, in what's become known as the shepherd's field, uh, shepherds are keeping watch over their flocks, protecting them from wild animals and robbers. And as I've just begun to say then, um, theirs was a, a poor man's profession. In fact, according to early Jewish writings, uh, in the ancient world, shepherds were despised. Uh, you see, that their, their nomadic lifestyle meant that they were separated from human communities and culture for long periods of time. They couldn't, for example, go to synagogue. Uh, much like gypsies then, uh, suspicion and distrust grew around them. In fact, you'd as soon socialise with lepers and tax collectors, uh, as you would with shepherds. And yet it was to them that an angel of the Lord chose to appear. And not just one angel, but a whole heavenly Host. A bit of a historical context here. In ancient times, the birth of an emperor was celebrated by poets, bards, and court orators inside palace walls. Well, Jesus' birth is celebrated by angels, not in palace halls, but in open fields, and not before lords, but before shepherds. And once more, just as Isaiah had prophesied, Good news is proclaimed to the poor because the gospel of Jesus Christ is as much for the poor as it is for Caesar in his palace or for a peasant couple from Galilee or for everyone and anyone in between. Let every heart prepare him room. Either way, back into our text there, verse 9. A warrior messenger from God appears to them. Verses 9 to 11. And the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, "'Do not be afraid. "'I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. "'Today in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. "'He is the Messiah, the Lord.'" Well, as you can imagine, they're they're terrified, (laughs) But the angel's words bring, well, they begin to bring some measure of comfort, uh, which is just as well, because a moment later, the dark night sky is ablaze with glory. Uh, 13, suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Imagine shepherds, their night eyes are almost blinded as, as darkness turns to blinding light and a great company of heavenly host appears. And by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, but these are military terms, company and host. The sky is filled with a great army of God's warrior messengers, here not to bring war, but to announce the Prince of Peace. The army is huge, regimented and marshaled for praise and the purposes of God, deployed this time not for war, but for peace. Milton uh, imagined uh, the scene. He imagined them lined up in ranks outshining the stars. And he wrote these words. He wrote, The helmed cherubim and sordid seraphim in glittering ranks with wings displayed, the stars with deep amaze stand fixed in steadfast gaze. In the Old Testament, Job tells us that at the creation of the world, the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Well, now the angels once more join their voices at the greatest creation of all, the incarnation and birth of Jesus Christ, the saviour of the world. Isaac Watts joins their chorus. Let every heart prepare him room. And the shepherds fear and deep reverence of God It gives way, as it it always does, to obedience and faith. Verse 15 and 16. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And as we just read there, they didn't just obey. Our text says they hurried to do so. And so we imagine them running, uh, leaping over low Judean fences, checking stable after stable, humble dwelling after humble dwelling, looking in animal slop after animal slop until finally finding the saviour of the universe in the feeding trough of an animal under the watchful care of a village carpenter and a presumably very washed-out-looking teenage girl. The night sky filled with an army of boisterous angels and a feeding trough. What a powerful and unthinkable sign, so impossibly and divinely incongruous, signalling the arrival of one who would later teach of the first becoming last and the last becoming first and the greatest amongst us becoming the servant of all. The greatest to ever walk amongst us begins his journey in a feeding trough born out of wedlock, illegitimate. I mean, you can imagine what would later be whispered about him and his mum. Yeah, right, a pregnant teenage virgin from the disreputable town of Nazareth. And all of this astounds the mind and challenges us, I think, to our deepest core, that the God of of the universe would take on these clothes and make his grand entrance into our world in this way. He came into their lives so he could come into ours. Let every heart prepare him room. Well, the scene shifts um, one final time. Uh, Jesus is now 40 days old. Uh, And in meticulous observance of the Jewish law, his parents have travelled to the temple in Jerusalem for Mary's purification after childbirth and for the dedication of their firstborn son to God. And just a bit of an aside here, in recording these details... Luke is at pains to show us that Jesus is Jewish. In the opening two chapters of his Gospel, Luke places Jesus thoroughly within Judaism. This isn't some new religion that's sweeping the world, but the same God continuing to work out his plan of salvation from within the institutions, rituals, and practices of Judaism. Let every heart, especially those of our Jewish brothers and sisters, prepare him room to humble, faithful, and zealous Jews of the first century, a saviour is born from the line of David, the long-promised Messiah that the Jewish nation has been waiting for. And Simeon is one such Jew, a devout old man as full of faith as he is full of years, patiently waiting on our Lord. Well, graciously, Simeon's wait is over. And in our mind's eye, that in the temple courts, we see his age-spotted hands holding baby Jesus in the air. And for a moment, the world ceases to turn. Joy and prophecy flow out of Simeon's heart by the power of the Holy Spirit as he cradles the saviour of humankind against his chest. Every heart... Simeon, like so many faithful Jews down throughout the centuries, never even for one moment gave up trusting and looking and waiting for the consolation, the word in our text, which, by the way, means the deep comfort and renewal of Israel, the coming of the Messiah, in whom all of God's ancient promises to his people would be fulfilled. And that day is finally here. In uncontained joy, Simeon lifts his voice to God. And he says at the end of our passage, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. All the promises of God will find their yes and amen in the baby that Simeon holds in his arms. Uh, Promises for Jewish people, for Gentiles, uh, people from all the nations. In other words, promises for every heart. All of God's promises find their yes in this baby. And Simeon knows it. A kingdom that will never end, 2 Samuel 7. Uh, Every nation on earth blessed through him, Genesis 12. Uh, One pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace will be on him By his wounds, we will be healed, Isaiah 53. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it in righteousness and justice from that time on and forever, Isaiah 9. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain You are my son, today I've become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2, let every heart. And Simeon trembles as the word of God rushes through his soul by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's fulfillment, living and breathing. Jesus' little heart beating in his arms. Let every heart prepare him room. the greatest statesman of ancient times, a peasant couple from the wrong side of the tracks, a military company of the most powerful supernatural beings in the universe, working-class men of ill repute, and a frail old man as full of faith as he is full of years, representing the Jewish nation, and praising God for the one who brings salvation to people from all the nations, Luke's point in this diversity, let every heart prepare him room. The message of Christmas is that the gospel of Jesus is for everyone. There's no greater need, there's no greater reality, and there's no greater message than that the Son of God came into the world to save sinners like you and me. And so prepare room in your heart this Advent season for Jesus. Treasure him up in your heart like Mary. Bring the good news of his birth to our world like those angels. Obey him with eagerness like those shepherds. Sing praises to him with the whole of your life until you're old and full of years like Simeon. Praises like this one. Joy to the world The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. I'm going to pray now um, just to close those thoughts. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray uh, for this Advent season. It may be a time of preparation and eager expectancy as we look forward to celebrating the birth of our Saviour, the birth of your Son into our world. May every heart prepare him room this Christmas. And during this festive season, may our vision be raised to the day that Jesus will return, filling every moment with newfound significance and great, great joy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.